Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Julie Sandler. Julie is a managing director at Pioneer Square Labs and runs the firm's venture capital arm. Pioneer Square Labs Ventures. Prior to PSL, Julie was a partner at Madrona Venture Group, where she led the firm's investments in Integris, Poppy, and Julep. She is an adjunct lecturer at the University of Washington Foster School of Business and teaches an MBA course on entrepreneurship for which she has repeatedly been named a UW star teacher. In addition to serving on many privately held company boards, she also serves on the boards of several nonprofit organizations industry associations and advisory boards, including the Washington Roundtable. In 2013, Julie launched the Seattle Entrepreneurial Women's Network, an informal forum for women entrepreneurs and startup executives to connect in the greater Seattle area. A few years ago, she was one of 60 Americans named as a presidential leadership scholar by the Clinton, Bush, and Johnson Presidential Centers. Julie graduated Phi Beta Kappa, from Stanford University with both a master's and bachelor's in psychology and has an MBA from Harvard Business School. She currently resides in Seattle with her husband Alejandro and their toddler son and newborn daughter who I cannot wait to squeeze. Welcome, Julie. <laughs> Thank you so much, Shauna. You look Happy amazing. I can't believe, I know we're in this pandemic and we can't physically see each other, but I'm sending you such big hugs. You look amazing after like just having a baby. I don't know how you're doing this. God bless you for saying that. Thank you. You look wonderful. So I'm so happy to get to, to chat with you also just generally, but, but certainly about uh, the topics that you have in mind for today. I know. I'm so excited. I'm going to crush you with some rapid fire. Hopefully you didn't get briefed already because I did. Um, I am guilty of reaching out to Ale, your husband, and also Greg, your business partner. Um, to see if I could learn any behind the scenes. We were trying to figure out a way to prank you, but I was like, this is going to be too too hard over video. <laughs> I am so glad you saw reason on that one. That, that, leave it to Ben, da, 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 Ale and Greg. That, that's I know, I know. Okay, so the, this one's a, a more businessy one and the other ones are a little fluffier and easier. Um, what single trait is most important in a fundable entrepreneur as far as your experience? Mm. Self-awareness. Ooh, I like that one. Mm. That's such a good one. Mm. Um, okay, this is a fun one since we're both tennis players. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. <laughs> Do you have a two-handed or, or one-handed backhand? It's two-handed and it's it's the first thing to, to go like when I stop, like when I oh, stop of course. for a while. Yeah, it's just, it's terrible. It's awkward. It's, it's just like a serve. Like forehands you can crush, but a serve is like, wait, how do I do this again? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's like one of those moments and uh, experiences in life where if you were ambidextrous, you would just be unstoppable. I'm surprised there are not more ambidextrous, like top 10 tennis players. Ever. Yeah. A lot of left-handers, which is always impressive. What's your favorite musical? Cause I know you're into the musical theater scene. <laughs> Oh, that's so hard. Um, modern musical, probably Dear Evan Hansen. Oh, I've not seen it. Yeah, it's wonderful. When you go to New York, is that like 100% no matter what, you're going to the theater? 
I'm probably in New York once or twice a year for work. And I will, I will do this thing where I, I set my alarm for about 4.30 in the morning and I will line up at the box office to see, you know, even if it's a standing room, if I can get into a show that night, like a little dinner meeting and then, then go to a show. I love it. There's some really good off-Broadway opportunities. We used to go get those when I lived in New York. We would just show up and just get tickets. It's the best. One of the best things about New York. Are you a morning or night person? Afternoon person. I, I peak right around like four o'clock. Like. All right. Well, you're peaking. It's four... 14 right now. So <laughs> let's see how we do. <laughs> Hopefully you won't crash and burn right in the middle. <laughs> this is the latest podcast I've done. And my kids are like, I'm like drinking coffee. I'm like, I got this. I can do it. <laughs> um, okay. So this is an LA little tip. What's a favorite Shakespeare quote? A favorite Shakespeare quote? Um, you know, I, I will tell you uh, when I was younger and through today I have a I have a mild stutter that you know comes out in particular when I am uh like tired or had a little bit to drink or or after I've given birth like I, I'm like stuttering and stammering <laughs> like crazy and when I was younger um theater particularly plays or Shakespearean plays were just a great way to you know, kind of have an outlet and plan what you were going to say and figure out which syllables to to enunciate so so at Toward the end, if we have time, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll give you a little, little quote, but I'm, I'll have yeah. to think of something. <laughs> well, that's very much like putting, I was like, if she has a Shakespeare quote off the top of her head, I was like, I'm very impressed. Um, I don't even, I could never think of one. So I was impressed that that was even in the, in the realm of something that, so I didn't know you had a stutter because I've never heard it before. And especially ironically with the podcast, um, especially when I was in the studio, like the sound was so intense that I couldn't believe how many people have stutters. I think probably, and lisps, like things that you just hear more closely when you're listening um, through a headphone. So I've never heard it, but that's that's amazing thing to be able to overcome and have your confidence level. Cause I know that that can, especially as a child, impact somebody. Oh, totally. Well, I mean, it's one of the reasons family. also why I love theater too. Like if, if either of my kids have even, you know, an inkling of an interest in, in theater, I'll, I'll totally encourage them just because it gives you, I think, the confidence to be able to stand and deliver a line, which is wonderful. Yeah. But also it's just great sort of scrappy product management skills to stand at <laughs> production. And, you know, I think these experiences that you have in theater translate across yeah. so many different industries and experiences. That yeah, have we have that. We have these things. I'll never forget when I first met you, but we're in rapid fire. So of course I'm getting okay. off, off topic here, but um. <laughs> that we were like, oh, you've got this, I've got this. We had all these overlapping things in common and we've never discussed this, but I was also in musical theater when I was young um, in a lot of different plays and I loved it. I just kind of went, I went the tennis direction instead of the dance and theater, but that was another passion of mine. So, it's so, it's so I get it. Okay, so what have you read, listened to or seen that has had kind of an impact on you that comes up for you over time? Um, you know, um, a book that I, I am reading right now as, as, um, you know, as we, as we, not as we speak, but today has been, um, this book, uh, called Untamed by- Oh God, don't Tony even Boyle. get me started on that book. That's Wonderful. a game changer. Wonderful. And, and the fact that, you know, that it is reaching so many people so quickly and that it resonates with so many different individual experiences is pretty amazing. So that, that's my recommendation and it's, it's causing me to 
to think about, you know, personal, professional, all sorts of things through. I love that book so much, especially for women and just rethinking how we've been taught to believe like what is the norm and the human, like things that we've constructed as like societal pressures that we just put on ourselves that I, I think that book is incredible. I've bought it for several girlfriends and I love that you're reading it. We can discuss it. We'll have our own little book club. Perfect. <laughs> um, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Mm, any superpower? I would control time. Make like it slow it down. I'd slow it down, speed it up, go backwards, forwards. I think that, that it's really become a top of mind superpower for me, especially after having kids, because I, I wish that I could you know, see what they're going to be, but then be able to come back to this, you know, moment in yes. time and experience their, their little. Yeah. And it's so cliche, but as your like older friend, I can say it's so true when people say it goes so quickly. And as a working mom, oftentimes I find that when I look back, I spent so much time just trying to get through the day and mm. like get them to bed. And I was pretty like strict about, you know, let's get to bed so that I can go do what I need to do. And I just love the idea of just being with your babies, like just laying in bed and just staring at them and cooing. And it sounds so cliche, but it's, it's the best. I cannot wait to be a grandma. <laughs> as crazy <laughs> as that sounds, I just want babies. Like I want to hold your babies. I love it. Yeah. It so, so tell me, talking about babies, when you were a kid, how different is kind of the way that you're raising your kids or what have you, what have you taken away from your upbringing that you want to carry on as far as values and lessons learned from your own parents? Yeah. Well, yeah. basically if I can replicate half of what you know, my parents um, did for, for me and my sister, I think I'd feel pretty good um, about the upbringing that I'm given, um, given our kids. Um, you know, one thing that um, I really appreciate that my parents thought of for me was, you know, just trying to provide experiences, good and bad, just like providing experiences and, and teaching us that even bad experiences are formative and can make you stronger and better and, and able to tackle on the next, you know, set of experiences in the next phase. Um, I really appreciated the fact that that was a value that my parents tried to instill in me. And I think it gave both me and my sister a lot more more grit and an appreciation for both good and bad experiences as, um, as we move forward. Yeah. And I, I mean, obviously we're seeing it's a very different time for Amelia and our, and my daughters, like that they're being raised in a time where, um, you know, they're basically being told as anything is possible. I was definitely given that message. And I think that you probably were too, but I think that that's super unique. Like I'm sure from a young age, you believed in yourself, which is nothing to be taken for granted that your parents played a role in that. Oh, for sure. For sure. But at the same time though, you know, it, it's funny. Like, I feel like I have friends or people that I grew up with who for some reason just had this like impenetrable sense of self-confidence, like both like girls and boys, men and women who grew up, you know, just feeling like, wow, like I am just the best. Like <laughs> I am incredible. And I really kind of envied that. Like I envied the fact that they just sort of had this, um, this sense of just like true self-confidence in anything they applied themselves to. And, you know, there's good and bad that comes with that, but I would, I would love for my kids to have a, a healthier dose of that too. Is there, is there a time that you feel like you transitioned into more confidence? Like there's certain times it's like my son's right now studying. I don't even know if I've told you, but Max is studying in Israel right now. 
And he's going to come back just stronger, more empowered, more confident, just from the ability to go, um, you know, be in another country, not knowing people and mm -hmm. make a little mini life for himself. Is there a time that you're like, thank goodness I did that because I really grew? Um, I'm trying to think if there's like a, a moment or a year, I can tell you the years where I felt like that took a big hit. Like I think in like middle school is when mm. it sort of took a, a dip and it probably came back um, maybe early twenties or so um, when I first started working and realizing like, oh, okay, like I'm smart enough to contribute to something that is mm -hmm. tangible, that has value, that a lot of people care about or that could have a positive impact. I think during, you know, my years in school, it was sort of like, oh, okay, like I can, I, I'm, I can figure out this in sort of the classroom context or the academic context, but it really wasn't until I started working with folks who, um, who were older than me, who had more experiences that I respected that I realized, okay, like I, I, I can contribute. There is something to, to give to the world. That's not just, you know, me in a, in a classroom or. Yeah. or well, know. it's interesting because um, when you think about middle school and there's a lot of talk, I think you've also done the talk at Seattle girls school. Yeah. Um, I did that also, which is a great experience just going in and realizing that they're putting focus on a real thing, which is the camouflaging that happens for girls in middle school mm -hmm. where they don't want to stand out to be too anything. They just want to kind of blend in and almost disappear. And I keep trying to remind my kids that it is super cool to be smart. Mm. And obviously you've always been really smart. Was that something that you felt proud of or rewarded for by teachers or by your family or your friends, I guess? Yeah. I mean, um, it was important to me. Like, I, I think I was, um, from a like personality perspective, I've never been, I've never felt super competitive with other people, but I've always felt very competitive with myself and mm -hmm. sometimes hard on myself. I think if I, you know, didn't you know live up to whatever standards or whatever age that I might've had. And so, um, so, so that I think was, it came, it came very intrinsically, I think. Um, yeah. Do you know what you were? I mean, I, I, the like play on words, but like what you were fueled by as far as, cause I have one, I, I have two children who are, I mean, all of them are wonderful, but one that's really hard on herself. And it's almost like I'm trying to remove that part because it can also show up as angsty and, you know, so stressed out that I'm like, how about joy? And how about being a kid and just being light? But you seem like you are type A probably, but you have like a type B personality. Like you're always mm -hmm. seem so chill and happy that I'm like, where's her stress? Because obviously at the academic levels that you've competed in and you're even just work stuff, there's obviously a lot of stress. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I was talking with um, you know, one of the, the CEOs um, in our venture fund portfolios and leading a company in that portfolio about, about this recently. And we're talking about how as a leader, um, you need to have a balance of both extreme gratitude and recognition for, you know, the good, but also, you know, a sense of dissatisfaction. In other words, oh, yeah. like, you just got to be a little bit like not content with your of course. current situation. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for me personally, you know, when, um, when I was, was younger and I mentioned this to you, you know, over, over email before, you know, I, um, I, I had, um, I had some health issues that, you know, were like super stressful to my, my parents in particular from about the age of nine to 15. And 
I won't go into the details, but you know, I spent a good chunk of, of time during those really formative years, like coming in and out of children's hospital and seeing the stress on their faces. And I think part of me during those sort of weird years of, of childhood, I sort of internalized this notion that maybe I, I would not get to one day experience all the cool things that are happening in, in life now, like having children and, and, and being married to this wonderful man and getting to do the stuff professionally that you and I get to do. Never really, never really sort of, um, occurred to me fully that that was like something that was guaranteed or promised. And so I do feel like even when there's bad days or bad things happen, I do feel like this incredible sense of just gratitude and almost just glee that, mm -hmm. you know, you get to experience all the things that are, that are happening. You get to right wake now. up another day and experience yeah. life. I do think that those setbacks um, are, are equally, if not more important. And, and I've known that forever, but especially in now almost like pattern recognition of the podcast, even specifically of all the leaders and all these outlying rock stars that I get to interview and hearing them talk about doors closing and windows opening and just all of the things that people have learned along the way. And the gratitude thing is something that can't really be, I mean, I guess we can teach it, but it's such a great practice. And I always think of you like that, just glasses half full, hundred percent. It's, it, it's funny. Like part of me, like, I don't know, even when like, you know, weird things are happening or what have you, I, I'll think about like, well, what if I was 90 years old and I could come back and I could control time and I could come back and live today, you know, the way that it is what would I be thinking? I would think it's probably pretty cool. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's a pretty, um, whether it's professional or personal stuff, like it's a, it's a pretty um, important thing to recognize that, Hey, like you don't, you don't know necessarily what is ahead or how many years or months you might have. And so just to kind of find the moments of gratitude, but things big and small is a, is a really, um, I don't know, top of mind thing for me in the day to day. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously in preparing for this, um, I knew a lot about you because we've been friends for a long time, but in just seeing it written in paper, you know, Stanford undergrad, master's in psychology from Stanford, going back to get your um, MBA at Harvard. Um, I love seeing the psychology. Were you thinking that, um, well, first of all, how'd you even choose Stanford? Um, they Did you have your eye on the prize? <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, it was like it was like a you know reach school. You know, I guess they they call it that, right? When you're yeah, I'm like, was that your school. stretch or your safety? Obviously, yeah, no was, one, yeah, no one safety school is Stanford, but yeah, <laughs> definitely my stretch. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. Like, I think I had expected that I would go. I hoped that I'd go to the University of Washington. My mom was a Husky. Um, my my grandmother too. I mean, it was a really special place in my mind, and my plan was to go there and then I, I got that that letter and I just thought yeah there's no turning back when you get that I used to go to the um Stanford training camp every summer for tennis oh wow. and so I spent time on that campus and just around that energy of just the athletics and just the vibe and you can't turn oh that down God. but yeah. how did you decide psychology like did you have any sense of what you wanted to kind of be when you grew up when you were at Stanford I wanted to be a clinical psychologist yeah, I would assume. I mean, master's in psychology. How did you pivot from that plan? Um, you know, it was my, my senior year and they had this program in the department where you could like try to squeeze in a graduate degree during your senior year, which um, was cool from a you know time and um, financial savings perspective, but very difficult from a 
um, maintaining appreciation of, of the art <laughs> perspective. So mm -hmm. uh, I was so burned out um, by the end of my senior year. I was spending, you know, on top of class work and I was, you know, working a job part-time and I was in the lab, you know, 20 hours a week too. And I just remember thinking like, I don't think I can do this for the next, you know, several years and either in academia or in a clinical setting. And the very last company that was interviewing on campus was this random consulting firm called Accenture. And <laughs> I was going to say, is that was that Accenture? <laughs> that was it. And they brought me up for an interview and it was like the, I don't know, like the 30 something floor of the Spear Street Tower in San Francisco that had this beautiful view of the Bay Bridge and, and the Golden Gate Bridge. And I thought, I'm going to work here. Oh, and yeah. That was how I ended up <laughs> in technology and in product work was, was that experience and just kind of rolling the dice and seeing where it led. Did you ever do any internships or any work in clinical psychology? I mean, obviously, I would love to know how you've been able to parlay what you learned um, into like a more of a business setting. My, you know, David has his PhD in, in org psych, which is an interesting blend of kind of work Both psychology. Worlds. Yeah. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I did, I did a bunch of, um, bunch of, of work um, in a clinical setting in, in, in when I was in the psychology department at Stanford and, um, and loved it. I mean, it was, it was super interesting to me the way the human mind works, the way the human mind makes decisions mm -hmm. and how that's impacted by, you know, personality was a really um, big focus of my, my thesis when I was there. And um, so, so I loved it, but it was surprising to me just how much kind of lingers with you. Um, a lot of your studies during that, those years of your life, they kind of stick with you. And when I think about even my work today, I joke that a lot of times I feel like I should have like a red sofa in my office. Oh yeah. To just lie down and, and talk about, you know, all the problems happening at your company and, and yeah. Um, well, I think that the fact that, that you've had, sorry to interrupt you, but the fact that you have had both um, a master's degree in psychology and that you understand humans and that I'm sure that your EQ is extremely high, um, combined with the fact that you have operating experience, which not all investors have, I think does, combined with the fact that you're a woman, I think gives you this incredibly unique um, perspective. And so I am curious, like when you are um, talking to founders or talking to potential um, and entrepreneurs that you may want to invest in, does that give you a little edge that you give them kind of a safe haven where they can really disclose their inner thoughts? You know, I hope so. I think just being a good board member means that you are somebody who, you know, at any stage of the company can you know, be trusted enough and, and, believes in enough that you know, as, as a founder, you want to communicate with that board member very openly and honestly. Um, I, I will say a lot of the times that I get like a late night phone call from a founder, it is related to a personnel issue or a team issue or co-founder issue. And um, I, I think that's probably like when I get called first and when I get call, called at weird hours, that's probably what's going on. And yeah, they're like, who do I want to call? It's Julie because she's going to, she's safe. And she's somebody who's going to, even if she has to deliver difficult information is going to have kind of a velvet hammer <laughs> approach, which is a skill and a not so teachable. So, so tell me um, from Accenture, I saw then, I mean, you've worked at huge companies. You did Microsoft, you did Amazon. Is that what brought you back to Seattle? 
Yeah, you know, um, I, I'm one of those people uh, for whom the story of I left and I had to come back because I love the region and the more places I saw, the more I realized I love the region, that that story definitely played out for me. Uh, so I, I was gone from the region for about a decade or so. Yeah. Um, and then, then came back right after after business school. Um, and uh, frankly, just given the fact that my, my family's still here, that family even have ties to the entrepreneurial community. My uh, my, my great grandfather, when you know, he you know, came to Seattle, um, he started uh, his own entrepreneurial undertaking. It was a you know produce stand at the Pike Place Market. Like oh, um, I didn't know that. Is it still there? No, it's not. No, it's not. But it was you know. But your memories of like I'm sure of just like Seattle. I always felt. I mean, obviously, when you and I met, we were like tennis, Mercer Island, Jewish, left, came back, like all these things, and now we're learning musical theater. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is interesting because I was not as much like I have to come back, um, but Seattle was definitely in my blood more so the community aspect of it. Like it definitely feels like home. Not as much like I need to be in nature, although now I'm very much craving that. Okay. Um, sure. You know, at the time I was like loving city from San Francisco to New York. And now I do have so much appreciation for Seattle and especially for the, the tech community and the community that we get to be in feeling so connected and so um, supportive. It's just, it's lovely. And I, I love that part. Um, but I am curious. So, we, so I, I always ask this for people who got their MBA. I think it's a different answer for somebody who got an MBA from Harvard, frankly, because of the network and because of the name and as a recruiter, what it does to build your resume. Um, what's your advice to younger people when they ask about going back to get an MBA? Mm. Well, in my mind, there's there's two reasons that you you might consider it. One is you know, if you feel like, gosh, this is um, an investment, and by an investment, I mean a very it's a very expensive investment from a time and financial perspective to build up, you know, an area of of knowledge that you feel you otherwise, you know, wouldn't have the time or ability to you know create for yourself. Um, and the second is, I guess, just the network. Point that you that you that you mentioned um, the, the the types of individuals who kind of at that one moment in life are taking the same detour and going through that experience together on both a social and academic front. You know, it's a it's a very powerful way to build great relationships. And so I'm, yeah. I'm grateful for my experience for um, you know, younger individuals that I know in this industry or outside of it that are thinking about it. I just say, look, like there's big pros and cons, and that. The dollar signs is a is, is a big big con on that list. So you have to have a lot of conviction that that is an investment that you want to make, and you probably do have to know what what dividends you want to see it pay out. Yeah, well, some of these companies like an Accenture, you know, can pay for your MBA, obviously, or like a lot of my um, clients in New York were investment banks, and then they would send obviously people back to get their MBA. Um, but are there, I guess, like case studies or things that you learned? when you were at HBS that you apply now subconsciously when you're looking at things through a certain lens? It's funny for me that the, certainly I didn't know what the word equity meant when I applied to business school. I mean, the entire world that I operate in, I didn't know anything about it. Yeah, well, you were a psych major. I get it. I was it. a psych major. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, it completely had no clue. So it was, it was hugely illuminating and powerful for me to be able to like, indulge myself and yeah. learn, learn for those two years the way that I did. But so that's important. But two, I mean, on a, on a given day, I'm, I am emailing 
someone that you know I either went to school with or who I met through someone I went to school with just in light of how um, externally connected this job needs to be to do it well. And, and that's been hugely powerful um, in, in my role. And uh, it's a real, it's a privilege certainly in the role to be able to, to call on that, that network. Yeah. And so when you have to compare like your experience at Accenture to Microsoft to Amazon, is there a thread in there that you're like, oh, these are the types of ways that I make choices when I'm taking a new job? Is it the people? Is it the product? Is there any takeaway that you can say, if I were to create my own company, I'd want the culture from Microsoft and the values from Amazon, or I'm just giving some random example, <laughs> but as far as how to create a dream culture? You know, um, for me, I think it's it's even more simple and it's it's probably selfish in a, in a way too. I would want to work with people that I love working with and enjoy working with and trust and who trust me. And, and I think when you, when you have that dynamic, especially on a leadership team, um, that trickles down throughout the entire culture. And, you know, when, when there inevitably will be politics that arise, it's politics that are applied to the right things, not the wrong things. And, yeah. you know, I love that. I love that you've just made that distinction. You're like, there's gonna be stuff but let's let us not make it about like nonsense. Let's and if there's trust at the foundation, um, then you can actually move the needle much faster and be much more efficient in decision making and getting to the right ultimate decision for the company. So that kind of is like perfectly parlays into um, what I want to ask you, which is your when you had coffee at Starbucks on Mercer Island with Greg Gottesman, who has turned into a, a key person in your life. Um, he said that that was a pivotal meeting for him, not just you, and that it was kind of a game changer in, um, in both of your lives. And obviously brings us back to the theme of relationships and trust. So what did that meeting um, result in, I guess? Yeah, that's, that's, so, that's so sweet that he he said that. But he and I were having a love fest over text. We we're like, I love her. No, I love her. <laughs> he gets to see you and talk to you all the time. But I have yet to meet somebody who's not just like, oh, yeah, she's cool. Everybody is like trips over themselves talking about how amazing you are. And um, well, this podcast built... is the place to be. I love this. <laughs> this is great. You, um, you have done such a good job of building such incredible relationships. But I think it's it's so authentically you um, that you're you're a giver and a generous person. Um, so I'm just curious more like how you met each other. Obviously, you both have the Stanford thing in common, Mercer Island, Jewish, all that. But like, how did that meeting come to be and what resulted from it? Yeah, so I, I've, I've told this this story uh, uh, before. So forgive me if I'm repeating it to you. Um, I've never heard it. You haven't. So um, when I was in um, grad school, I was in my dorm room and kind of racking my brain about what I what I could do when I came back to, to my old hometown. And I was like thumbing through the alumni directory and I, I saw Greg li living in Seattle and it had like the phone number for his landline and this firm that he worked at, Madrona Venture Group. And without much forethought, I dialed the number and didn't pick up. So I left like a, a four minute long rambling <laughs> voicemail message. It's like, oh, I love to meet you. I'm like from Seattle and it would be great to chat. And, and to my surprise, he called me back. 
like this random yeah, Greg's so good like that yeah oh my god just I, which floored me to begin with because I had sort of written it off as like he's not going to call back but he said look what next time you know you're home for the holidays like we'll grab a coffee and we could talk about the startup ecosystem in Seattle which I was really interested in and um he sat down and you know I, I remember the meeting really well because I'd done a lot of you know research about who he was before meeting with him and he said to me he's like you know what like I think you're going to do something really great one day. And I'd love to, you know, help out along that journey. And so if there are, you know, CEOs in our you know, venture fund portfolio or anything else, just like send me a note and I'm, I'm happy to connect the dots. And, you know, he did, I ended up working for one of um, Madrona's portfolio companies um, not too long after that and always stayed in touch with him and always kind of felt like I really would love to work with that guy someday. Cause it's so um, it's so emboldening especially when you're a young person, especially when you're a young woman in a male dominated yeah. industry to have yeah. someone like him say, I Be think you're going to do something interesting. Like Believe that in really you for sure. Super powerful statement to hear, um, especially at that, that age and moment in life. So um, if that alone, you know, was the impact that, you know, Greg Gottesman had on my life, like that would be plenty. Um, but of course, you know, we've ended up working together for the past decade or so. And that's just been one of the great, honors yeah. and gifts of my career. And what has surprised you most? Like when you said, I didn't know what equity was when I went to HBS, like you probably didn't know a ton about venture investing. What's been the most surprising part, good and bad? Um, kind of going back to what, you know, we started talking about, um, uh, you know, in this, in this conversation, just how human everything is, you know, one of my, one of my favorite books on this sort of entrepreneurial, journey is a book called Founder's Dilemmas. It's written by uh, a professor from Harvard Business School named Noam Wasserman. And he surveys thousands of founders in this book um, and asks them all, if you look back at your company and decide, you know, what was a determining factor in that company's success or failure? 89% of all of those founders he he interviewed said that it came down to the co-founding relationship, mm. the people they decided to start that journey with and how, not only how well they, you know, trusted each other and, and got along as we've talked about, but, but how aligned they were about the vision and direction of that company. Mm. And when there was misalignment, sure enough, you know, <laughs> challenge followed. And when there was total alignment, they look back and say, gosh, like if that, if I'd, if I had done this with someone else, this wonderful outcome, this wonderful story simply would not have played out. And, and to me, that's one of the most important things that I keep top of mind when, when engaging with you know, brand new teams at the pre-seed or seed stage is, is you know, how, how well are these two going to see eye to eye? Yeah. And so I know that there's like, you know, obviously you have to assess the idea, the people and like the, the overall actual investment opportunity. But as far as the people go, is it important that they have a track record of some sort? Um, and if so, what is that track record that you'd be looking for? And when you talk about founders getting along or having trust or any of that, how do you measure for that? Mm -hmm. So for the for the first piece, you know, how do you like what do you what do you look for in 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 a founder, especially one that doesn't have a long track record? I mean. Best quote unquote due diligence that I think any of us can do 
is to talk with other people who have interacted with that person. Right. Any context, by the way, ideally it's professional, but just, um, someone who understands who that person is, you know, how they've been motivated across different points in their life or career and understand, you know, where they thrived and where they struggled. And, you know, that is those kind of conversations, the color that you get on, on a particular founder, as you're looking at an investment in, in their company, um, those are the best, most illuminating conversations and elements of a due diligence process, at least for me. Yeah. Um, I've gotten calls on a few founders and I'm like, wow, this venture capitalist is being so thorough mm. as far as the questions that they're asking. Um, and I do think that absolutely you can learn a ton, but what about, um, sometimes I get calls to find a co-founder yeah. and to, to find, to help find that, um, core executive team. And to me, those hires are obviously super crucial. How do you measure that part? Like, will they blend? And, and are you looking for complementary slash overlapping skills and to what degree? Mm. Well, I will say it's it's really hard to get married after the first date. You know, and, and a lot of times, by the way, like a lot of times as an investor, like you have to decide to get married after like second or third date, you know, or not to get married and to never, you know, see that you know, that opportunity ever again. Um, and so that's a really strange and, and um, artificial context to, to make a decision like that in. And so a lot of times when you're rushed, you make bad decisions. And so for me, and I, I think this is true on, on both sides of the equation for both investors and founders alike, the more that you can build a relationship in advance of that decision, the better. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, you're great at that. That's super smart. That completely makes sense to me. Take the long game, right? Like I'm, I know I'm going to be in this. So let me constantly have a pipeline of smart, entrepreneurial minded, kind of driven people who are self-aware. Yes. <laughs> and that's the perfect formula. I love that. And so when you decided to leave Madrona, um, that sounded scary and risky and a lot of people probably wouldn't have taken that leap because it's, it's a lot to become a partner at a company like Madrona is the old stable kind of game in town. Um, what made you decide to go join Pioneer Square Labs and um, what's been most exciting about that opportunity? Yeah, you know, well, I'll say difficult decision to you know walk away from anything like that um to be sure and and a lot of dear friends uh, at, at madrona and, and amazing experiences really formative experiences for for me at madrona and, and forever grateful to have had that opportunity and to work with those those people um for me the, the reason that i i made the leap well there's two of them you know one of them i think was like is the big headline reason which is going back to the people point i mean so many folks that I had loved working with at Madrono, you know, we're at PSL and it was a chance to work with them again. And I, I knew having done the best possible personal due diligence, having worked with so many of those folks, Greg included for many years, uh, was the fact that I knew I would, I would love the culture. I would love the day-to-day -day experience personally of coming into the office pre-pandemic, you know, every, every day. Mm -hmm. um, the second reason it was a chance to build something entirely new and different. Yeah, that's the part that I was going to say, like how cool, especially even just walking into your office, the vibe is so awesome and warm and edgy and current. 
it just feels really good. And I have, for me as a founder, I love the idea of creating a culture and a brand. And you guys have done an amazing job at PSL. I love, I love the energy in there. It just feels really exciting. And you've done 25 spin outs in five years. We have. For yeah. the labs. Yes, out of the so we, we've got both the studio and the venture fund. Yeah. Um, from the studio, yes, we've spun out 25 companies. It's incredible. Um, they've all, you know, almost all of them, all of them that have wanted to raise venture financing have raised venture financing from third party, you know, VCs, not, not, not us all yeah. investing. Yeah. Third party VCs that always come in and lead mm-hmm. those investments. Um, one out of every three of those companies is, is woman founded. Um, that's that's not by any means like a, a, a mandate for us. It's just a for it's just I think by virtue of the fact that our company has a lot of diversity. We're connecting with so many different you know communities around you know this this region that that sort of happened. That you fill the top of the funnel and really great companies yeah. come out that have same more- thing with recruiting, right? You just like try right. to get a diverse slate, and the mm-hmm. more diverse the slate, the more likelihood the higher. Totally, um, totally. absolutely. Yeah. And so, can you explain? Um, how the business model works and, and what the differentiators are yeah. as far as how Pioneer Square Labs is structured yeah. or not, not the labs, the all of it, like the whole yeah. company. Yeah. Well, so the, the, the idea behind the whole organization is to build around the needs of any founder in this community, uh, especially early stage founders who were, you know, kind of like pre-series A. Um, if you are a founder who... Um, you know, has an idea, but is looking for a way to perhaps avoid learning lessons the hard way and, and taking a journey that's accelerated by, you know, world-class partners across, you know, design, engineering, data science, marketing, financing, operations, everything. You can work with us and we'll co-found that company with you without calling ourselves the co-founder um, and really help you hopefully skip a few really hard steps and you grow the pie as it were for, for your company and bring you um, past you know, those first important financing milestones and hopefully into market where you're you know, surprising and delighting your customers, whether you're a consumer or you know, business to business type play. Mm-hmm. Um, if you and, and what's are, your specialty? I know it's like your personal specialty or your sweet spot. As an investor? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say anything uh, touching, you know, lightweight SaaS B2B uh, all the way through to, you know, kind of consumer transactional. Um, mm-hmm. I don't do much of um, the classic Seattle DevOps or infrastructure type plays. Um, have dabbled in it a little bit, but really if, it, if it's something that you know, I could explain to, uh, you know, my, my, my grandfather, it's, I, I hate that expression, but probably the best it makes sense. To, if you could explain it to me, have my clients, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not quite sure what you do, but it sounds like something DevOpsy. Yeah. <laughs> That's I get definitely it. not what I would, what I, what I would, uh, what I would say, but, um, but if it's something that, you know, you can understand who the buyer is and how they're going to be using it as a um, you know, regular person who's not super, you know, versed in, um, you know, hardcore tech. I think it's, it's an area that I'll, that I'll look at. And we're all generalists, by the way, you know, when you're geographically focused, it's really important for you to be able to get smart across, you know, a ton of different verticals so that you can be right there as a thought partner with a founder mm-hmm. who's building a, a company in a category that touches, you know, any industry or any, anything to do with tech. Um, yeah. that by the way, means you're doing a lot of reading all the time and you're doing, you're having a lot of conversations and you're always wanting yeah. to make sure you understand. What is it? What is a typical day? If, if, um, if my daughter Jordan came to me and said, 
I think I want to be a venture capitalist. Can I go shadow Julie for the day? Um, which you should have her one day do. Um, (laughs) what would it, I mean, not pre pandemic, what would a day look like? Yeah. Um, so starting around, um, I don't know, 8.30 or 9 or so is when your actual meetings start. And um, there's probably four different um, threads that touch your, your day. One might be um, deal flow or new investments. So connecting with entrepreneurs or founders who are starting something new or building something new. Um, not necessarily fundraising, but getting to know their business, having them get to know you and your, your team and partners and, and try to find ways to actually support and provide some tangible value before they are fundraising. Um, a second kind of you know, meeting or interaction might be with an existing portfolio company. Maybe it's a, a board meeting or you're having a one-on-one meeting with um, the CTO to figure out you know, the game plan for, for a particular product launch. Um, the third thing might be more sort of internal um, operations type meetings. So um, earlier today, we had um, our, our PSL internal meeting focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what are our initiatives that we should be undertaking to increase the number of underrepresented founders and operators that we either are investing in or hiring. Who are we like, hiring and wiring to? Um, the, the, the fourth thing is really just kind of community involvement. You know, we all try to play a very active role in supporting community organizations that are, you know, hubs for innovation, whether um, that's, uh, you know, local accelerator or local university, um, local not-for-profit organization. We try to find ways to make sure that if there's really cool things happening in the innovation sphere in Seattle, that we're spending time either as board members or supporters or participants. Yeah. And so you talked about, um potentially like universities, like your teaching experience at UW, um, what, what type of time commitment is that? And what have you gotten from it aside from satisfaction <laughs> and diversity of thought as far as just kind of how your brain is working, preparing for, for lectures and stuff? Has that been a, a potential um, flow for you as far as finding entrepreneurs? Yeah, it, it definitely has. You know, so the University of Washington both the business school and the computer science department turn out more students who go on to work for you know top ten tech companies than any other university, public or private, on the planet. Like it's just I didn't know that unreal numbers, and you you see it and you feel it in the talent that that um, that sits in those classrooms. Um, so I've been I've been teaching in the business school for for eight years now, and the, wow. I teach a course focused on. Um, it's called Entrepreneurial Influence and the Pitch is the course. And it's all about all the different audiences that as a founder, as you know, you're always having to pitch and convince and get excited so that they can give you what you want and need to keep building your business. And that might be investors or board members like me. It might be employees or customers or the press or acquirers mm-hmm. or, or you name it. And the course is really broken up by audience so that as an entrepreneur, you understand you know, how to be motivating to a stakeholder to get them to give you what you need to bring your vision to life. I love that. And so when you're meeting with these entrepreneurs, like what's, I guess, the most common thing that they're asking or advice that you find that you're constantly giving, like how do they even assess if they're getting kind of quote unquote smart capital? Because I talk to, especially female entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. who are like, I've talked to a hundred venture capitalists, like help a sister out, like and it's either they're not pitching right or the idea is not great 
or maybe they're talking to the wrong people. Like what types of advice are you giving on this? Yeah, well, I, I'm going to say something controversial on this topic. I, I think that you know, any founder who is coming to an investor to sort of have the biggest light bulbs that are going to, you know, change their business or, or like there's something probably wrong in that situation. Like there is no founder, there's no great founder that I've ever met who doesn't know her or his business way better than any investor coming in ever could. That said, you know, when you are an investor, you're coming in with both skin in the game, but fresh eyes. And so you can look at something in a way that perhaps when you're bogged down, you know, in, in your company, you're in a situation or in a crisis, it's hard to kind of see the forest through the trees. Like our job is to kind of come in and help you see the forest through the trees. Um, and so any moment where um, I'm able to do that is extremely fulfilling as an investor, but I will tell you, it is just as fulfilling to help a founder find that perfect hire, even mm. if that's like referring that founder to someone like you, right? To be like, the, Shauna will, you know, find that perfect, you know, VP of sales for you. And mm -hmm. you know, we'll do all of the diligence necessary to, you know, help you make sure that person's onboarded successfully and hits the ground running. Yeah. Um, it might be, I introduce you to that investor who writes you that like $50 million check for right. your It's the connecting and part. You get a little, you get a little buzz out of it. I do too. Like whether it's through fuel or not. And I tell people, I have this conversation 10 times a day. I'm like, if we help you in a formal way where there's like a transaction of funds, mm -hmm. great. But mm -hmm. if not, like I'm going to be here the next 10 plus years. So this is a long game. And if I can connect you with something that that is helpful to you in either helping shape your resume or an interview tip or a person that might have an opportunity, mm -hmm. I'm happy to do it. Mm -hmm. And, but it's balancing that, um, kind of giving back. I'm sure you deal with this. Like, how do I assess my time? Mm -hmm. Like there's ROI time of like, this is actually going to make the company money and going to be my next Integris or Julep or what, you know, good one, mm -hmm. um, versus like, this is a friend of a friend of a friend favor. Um, do you put structure around that? Like, Hey, on Thursdays, I do my, you know, nice to haves versus mm -hmm. must haves. Uh, I'm very, I'm very bad at putting structure around it for myself. I think the best thing that I do, especially in the era that we're in, where it's just zoom marathons all day long is I, I try to have a, either a half day or a full day a week where I don't have just FaceTime or Zoom time where I'm truly thinking, okay, look at my priority list. Like, how do I make yeah. sure that in this day, like I do all of these things, whether it's, you know, related to, you know, investor relations or, or deal flow or portfolio mm -hmm. company support or internal PSL stuff. Yeah. Being um, able to pull yourself back a little and yeah. like do some deep work around the business versus just swatting flies and like putting out fires and having, I get that. And so during the pandemic, have you been able to make any um, kind of significant new relationships or are you one of these that's, you know, I keep reading these articles. It's like big deal. This company got funded without ever having met in person, um, which to me, I'm like, well, I'm making placements and hiring people without meeting them in person and kind of it's the new world we're in. What's your, what's your um, take on that? You know, it, it's funny when the pandemic uh, first hit and, and no one knew how, how long this would last. Um, the big question across VC funds and across LPs and across founders, I think was, well, so if you've never met someone in the third dimension before, can you actually raise a multi-million dollar round or a multi, multi, multi-million dollar round? And 
the reality is like you have to, right? Like we're seeing it happen. Yeah, <laughs> you do, you do. And so, especially since, you know, this, this, you know, seems like it's going to continue on for many, many months to come. You have to figure out how to compensate for the lack of the, the third dimension, the third dimensional cue that you'll get when you're meeting with someone for the first time. So because of that, like you are doing a lot more reference calling, you are spending a lot more time, you know, just chatting about things that are not specifically Q and A. That's a really important extra step that you have to take now that you maybe didn't have to as much before. But yeah. I think maybe our industry is healthier for it in a lot of ways, even even if that interpersonal connection is is lacking. I hope so. And so, what what do you think the trends are as far as what's going to come out of this as far as new ideas because of distributed workforces and remote work and, um, you know, what are you seeing as far as your portfolio companies, the impact of their culture and just this remote work vibe? You know, it, it's funny before the pandemic hit, we, um, a couple of us in our team had met with a company that was entirely remote and not just, Hey, you know, we're, we have a few offices, every single employee was in a different city and in many cases, different time zones. And I remember at the time we thought, huh, like, would we invest in a company where like the team is not together in the same HQ all day? And it's almost laughable now because, you know, even, even when the pandemic's done, even if there's a vaccine with broad distribution, um, I don't believe that this will forever change the notion of what company headquarters looks like, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. Will people be coming in every day? Probably not, you know, yeah. probably not going to be the norm. And will you be able to hire across the planet and, and tap into new pools of talent? Absolutely. And so opportunities that focus on how remote workforces can collaborate, how they can manage both onboarding and retention, which is something I'm sure is near and dear to your heart. Like mm-hmm. those are huge opportunities that are being formed right now. Um, and that cascades across you know, digital health and how providers and patients, I mean, everything is touched by this. So yeah. we're looking at both creating and also investing in companies that tap into a lot of these emerging themes that would not have even been a twinkle in our eye a year ago. Yeah. Well, it's exciting because it, it forces creativity. It forces like a growth mindset and it, and there will be companies that come out of this that it's going to be like, Oh, I should have thought of that. Like, obviously, you know, all of these needs that we have, there's so many different ideas are like, how do you create intersections that aren't happening at work? Um, where people aren't picking up the phone to have that quick two minute, like come into my office real fast. Like that is something that I'm trying to teach my team to just pick up the phone. Don't overthink it, just call. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't happen as easily. I think people feel like they're disrupting other people. Anyway, we could talk about that part forever because I do think that, um, I mean, you are right at the forefront of this and I'm sure that you will get a ton of deal flow coming your way. Um, and hearing about different ideas. Um, how are you guys, I know you said that you're doing some work and even today had a meeting around diversity and inclusion. What, what steps are you taking to increase the deal flow coming from under, underrepresented groups beyond just women? Yeah, well, you know, I'll tell you from a, from a high level perspective, there's a, there's a lot of dialogue happening in the venture industry, and I think across um, you know, technology founders in particular around what has happened over the course of this pandemic with regard to capital that is being invested in companies founded by underrepresented founders, and in particular, women founders and founders who identify as BIPOC, 
um, and it, it's hurting. I mean, it, like the numbers are, are worse than they've been over the past half decade. And you know, I'll tell you, you know, one of the the challenges, even just with the coverage of that, is it makes investors who are not used to investing in underrepresented founders nervous about investing in underrepresented founders, not about, you know, those founders ability to execute, but they're suddenly saying, oh my gosh, well, if I invest in this female founded company, will they be able to raise their series B, their series C, or other investors going to mm -hmm. have a hard time because of all the bias and prejudice. And, and what's difficult right now about that dialogue is it doesn't actually say to VCs who are not used to investing in underrep founders what to do. In other words, if you invest in a company with an underrepresented founder, you should make sure that you are introducing that founder to as many investors as early as possible so that they can build those relationships and get the connectivity that you already have. You know, if you have great uh, recruiting or, or PR or marketing or legal functions at your firm, make sure that you are showering those founders with attention. Because like we talked about at the beginning, like as a, as a, a female founder painting with broad strokes, I may be less likely to raise my hand and say, hey, give this to me right now. Like you need mm -hmm. to be proactive as an investor to make sure that all the resources you're promising invest, you're promising founders are being given very generously to those, to those founded companies. So we're, we're trying to be increasingly deliberate about that. Um, and hopefully it'll, it'll um, be apparent, you know, even, even more than it is now as, you know, our, our numbers become more and more reflective of better representation. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that we're doing a lot of work around it too. We have a consultant that we're working with and we're really trying to um, be aspirational around like what our North Star is. And I think it's just um, keeping the conversation going and not making it a one-time conversation and then like checking a box, but putting some cadence around it, um, mm -hmm. whether it's like hour of sourcing, just diversity candidates, and just trying really hard to be deliberate about casting a wide net to reflect the actual community, not just specific candidates. It's hard. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, it's hard and you have to be disciplined around it. And um, you guys are one of the few companies that that is in the community. And I think it's incredible. Um, and so we're talking about the pandemic, like you personally, is there anything that you would say, okay, let's just pretend we fast forwarded now, we're back to the real world, we're out in the club, we're out restaurants, we're doing our thing, we're traveling. Is there anything that you're like, I want to hold on to this feeling and I want to hold on to this new version of Julie going into like back to the whatever quote unquote real world? Yeah, well, I don't know about you, but the removal of commute time has illuminated for me uh, just how much more you can do with an extra hour or two in the day, mm -hmm. whether it's you know, more time with family or more time to you know, get some exercise or, or take care of, of yourself or those near to you. I mean, that, that's something that even as the day becomes more cramped, as we add the commute back, I, I hope that um, I, I try to prioritize more and more because that's, that's been very helpful. I know with uh, a lot of founders that I, that I work with in our portfolio too, that's been a big learning. And especially you've got multiple demands on you and so many stakeholders um, expecting things from you to be able to say, hey, if I'm not taking care of myself and my family first, I'm probably not going to be as good at my job. Mm -hmm. um, that's been, I think, it's become all the more clear, I think, to, mm -hmm. to me, it, it sounds like to me. And what, what does like a self-care mean to you? Are you deliberate about it? Do you create space just for you? 
Uh, well, uh, exercise has become uh, more and more of a thing, especially after just having a baby sort of reclaiming reclaiming. your body. (laughs) Yeah. Reclaiming movement is, is a, is a really big deal. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, what I've tried to do over the course of the day is I'll say, look from six 30 to nine, I'm doing my best not to be on my phone or my computer. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes that slips, sometimes it's, quite a bit less than that, but just kind of having that moment before and after a meal with the family, uh, that that kind of structure in the day has helped a lot and has allowed for me to kind of disconnect from the sort of day-to-day top of mind things that are there when you're present at work and just instead be present with with family. Has that changed for you at all? Have you added any structure? You know, I am like an extreme extrovert, as you know, Um, at least I thought I was. my whole life I've been like, go, 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 go. And kind of measured myself by, by the amount that I do and like not necessarily the being part, but just the doing and the productivity. And, um, and I'm also a person who says yes pretty easily without slowing down and, and there's no filter through which mm-hmm. decisions are necessarily made in any sort of sy- systematic way. And so now with more time and more distance from the chaos, I'm realizing that like, I kind of like the slowed down version. Um, and I'm trying really hard to be more present. It's hard, but, um, I'm not a very structured person. So I haven't figured out when I ask these questions and I ask them in the podcasts purely selfishly, I'm trying to get like hacks on life from people that I respect. Like, what do you do? You know, Um, exercise has always been a big part. I exercise every day. I'm trying to focus a little bit more on sleep Mm. right now, which is not a luxury that you Mm. have with a newborn. Mm. Um, you'll be like, look back on this and be like, I don't really know how I survived. It's a big blur. Um, but I value my sleep a lot right now. Um, and like you, like, I'm like, I don't have to, I was going at the gym at six in the morning before I'm like, I don't really need to get up before seven, seven 30 now. And then I'll work out and, and I'm trying to teach my team also to, to do them. Like, you don't have to have it be like from nine to five, this is how you do things. Like if you're not in the mood and you're not feeling it and you want to go do yoga at 1130, that's great. And if you feel like you're better sourcing candidates at night on, on the computer while you're, you know, watching some show, that's great. So it's like, really, I've always been kind of holistic in the way that I've approached the team, but even more so now I'm like, pay attention to like your energy flow. It's a natural flow and it doesn't have to be in the box, kind of like Untamed talks about, like you just don't have to think in in one way. And I think the pandemic has brought that out a little bit more for me. I think think that's fabulous. I mean, it's also powerful, especially for you as a leader of a company that you, you I know that you've, you've tried very hard not to create a culture where, you know, everybody sort of glorifies the notion of, of flagellation with work where you're, you're working 24 hours a day. And that's, that's not, um, that's not um, something that you, that you by any means glorify and to allow people to bring their whole selves to. Yeah. I'm huge on that. Probably to an extreme, like it's a little woo woo at fuel, but, um, but we all love each other and we get along. We do, we do meditating together. Like there's, there's a lot we do together. It's a little woo woo, but it, it works for me. So it's, and, and the team seems good. So that's, that makes me happy. I have a few more questions, but I feel like I'm like taking too much of your time. I'm like, oh no, you've got family and babies. And, but, um, I always end the podcast with asking people what fuels you and you've heard the podcast. So, you know, <laughs> 
Oh, 100% my family. I mean, it's a, it's an answer. I, I, I know you get a lot and it's, it's something I feel very deeply and, and powerfully now, now my kids, my husband, my sisters, my, my, my parents, I mean, it's one of the great things about being here in Seattle for me is the fact that so many of those wonderful people are, are nearby, even if I can't see them as often these days mm-hmm. in light of the macro. Um, but yeah, I think to me, um, everything else could go away, but if my family is there, I will continue that feeling of happiness and gratitude and, and the desire to contribute very much stems from the, the connection. I love that. I mean, having met your parents and knowing you when you were single and then Ale and now the two kids, it's so cool to see how far you've come in your personal life and that you got all that you deserve. Um, it makes me happy. Like good things should happen for good people. So I love seeing that. you. Oh, I want to, I want to knock on wood for all of us, but thank well, you. Well, I know it's true. We're all like the Jews. <laughs> We're like all superstitious. <laughs> so good to see you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Shauna. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.